Morning. Luke 25 starts out. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Is that it, Pastor? Yes, sir. I wasn't totally locked in there. Verse 36. Oh, 36. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will, come upon, it will come upon those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Amen. Thank you, Brother Ray. Appreciate that. <clears throat> that was... Um, Luke 21, 25 to 36. I will try and occasionally refer back to the text if you do want to, to follow along. I'll encourage you to do that. Well, around this time of year, it's, it's really good to be a Methodist. Um, not that it's not good the rest of the year, and it's not good to be any sort of Christian. Um, I'm not saying that. But maybe you're familiar with, uh, with John Wesley. He's the man that I think uh, we trace the roots, at least, of the Methodist Church back to. Well, John had a younger brother named Charles, who's maybe not quite as well known as John is. But Charles was a phenomenal hymn writer. Charles would pen very famous hymns like, And Can It Be? Arise, my soul, arise, Jesus, lover of my soul, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and many others. But during the Advent season, it's almost guaranteed that you will hear one of Wesley's most famous hymns, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. In fact, Wesley published a collection of Christmas hymns. It was a whole little booklet on nothing but Christmas uh, music. 
way back in 1744. It was so popular that it was reprinted almost 20 times just during his own lifetime. What a gift his writings are to us, especially this time of year. Well, another hymn that Wesley wrote that is occasionally sung during the Advent uh, season is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns and captures this hope that we're recognizing and giving thanks for today as we've lit the first Advent candle and as we'll do all that we do uh, during this time of year. It says this, it's a, it's a short little hymn, just a couple of stanzas or verses. I get the terminology incorrect all the time, but... I'm not sure if it's in our hymn, though, honestly. It, um, it's Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I could easily... 86. 86? Okay, number 80, page 86? or Page 86? Okay, it's song number 86. So, yep. Yep, no problem. It says this. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set Thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth Thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born Thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now Thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. The words may be slightly different in your text. I don't know because there's all these different versions. Um, but maybe more than anything else, that song captures for me as I read it, the hope of Advent. It's the hope of true freedom. The hope of fearlessness, the hope of true rest, the hope of true joy and contentment, the hope of deliverance, the hope of having a good king, a good leader in control of the world's affairs, the hope of Christ ruling in our hearts, the hope of being righteous, and the hope of being raised one day with Christ and living with Him for eternity. All of these hopes are the hopes of Advent, and I think they're all captured in Wesley's glorious hymn. Well, today, our text from Luke is intended to get us to look to heaven for this hope. It shows us a world here on earth that is filled with tragedy, a world filled with war, a world filled with drugs and drunkenness and stupor, a world filled with terror and anxiety, a world of hopelessness. That's the world that Jesus and Luke speak of in our text today. Because Luke wants us to look to Jesus. Luke wants us to see the futility of finding hope in this place, in this world. A very natural response maybe to this would be, well, Pastor, why would we find hope in such a place? If, this, if it is as Jesus describes here in this passage, as Luke is, is telling the story here, why would we try and find hope in this place? That's the way the world is. Why would we even try? But that's what's so bizarre, is it not, about us as human beings. 
That despite there being little reason really on the surface to put our hope in this place that is decaying and dying all around us, we still do it. We still do it. Around every turn, we still continually, do we not, put our hope in the things of this world. We, we still, day after day, manage to forget the reality of heaven, the reality of an eternal existence that's just lying on the other side of the curtain of death. This life is a shadow. It's a vapor. And then eternity. We forget that. We live as though that's not true every day, do we not? Jesus says that the world's calamities are signs that our redemption is drawing near in verse 28 of the passage there. Just like in the spring when you see the first flowers, he refers to a fig tree, which I don't know if there's figs around here or not. Are there any figs? No, okay. There are some down where, um, where I come from. Not super abundant, but they're there. But maybe more familiar analogy would be like flowers poking up through the snow, right, in the early spring. When there's just a, maybe an inch or two of snow there, you still see grass and flowers and stuff tra- starting to come up. But Jesus says that when calamities hit the earth, we should be aware that in a similar way, the end of things as we know them here on earth are coming to an end. Right? Something's changing. A big change is about to happen. What you thought maybe was so secure and firm when the winter takes hold and is, is here for months and months on end. Of course, not this year as much it doesn't seem. But last year, the winter never felt like it was going to leave. And then it's gone. Right? So it is with this world and the things of this life. Christ says His return will be the same as the coming of spring. Verses 34 and 35 say this, Be on your guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that each day, or excuse me, and that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Why does the day come unexpectedly? Why for so many would they be surprised that Jesus is coming? Not because there was no warning. Not because there were no signs, Jesus says. But because they felt secure. In the words of one great preacher, I was reading earlier this week, he says this, In this passage, Jesus gives us clearly to understand that the world will continue in its carousing and its eating, its drinking, its building, its planting, will be diligent in seeking after earthly things. We'll look upon the day of judgment as yet a thousand more years off. That's coming. That's way down the road. I ain't got to worry about that for a while. When in the twinkling of an eye they may stand before the terrible judgment bar of God. All of a sudden you're there. We've all been students, right, at one point or, or another in our lives, and maybe some of you in this room right now are students currently. Every student knows, I know when I was in college, I actually had this happen to me a couple of times. Every student knows the most dreadful thought is showing up to class, taking your seat, and thinking that today is just like any other day, only to unexpectedly hear the professor say, put your books away, we're having a test. If you would have but known, you might think to yourself. If the teacher would have but given a warning in advance notice. If she would have told us that this day was coming, we might have been prepared. And like any good faithful teacher might say, I did give you warning. I did prepare you. I told you. But you were too busy carrying on and not paying attention. 
In another place in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 17, Jesus talks of His return and He says it will be like it was in the days of Noah, or in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Starting at verse 26, He says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. He goes on, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Just like in those times, not my words, Jesus' words, so people are and will be in the day when the Son of Man returns on the clouds in great glory. Just like that. So preoccupied, so busy, so concerned and weighed down with the things of this world that they will be totally oblivious and unprepared. But let us be careful, right? Not to hazard a guess as to when the Son of Man might return, right? We've all got these examples. Y'all probably heard a bunch of them in the news. So-and-so posted a big billboard or this cult gathered around because they were just sure that Jesus was coming back on this day or that it was all going to happen on such and such a date. Too many today are overly preoccupied with the return of Jesus. That they believe there's some way to discover the day by studying world events or numbers in scriptures. But Jesus clearly teaches us in scripture that no one knows the days or the time and you're not going to figure it out. Stop wasting your time, Jesus says. Mark 13, 32, But about that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of Man, but only the Father. If you can figure it out, you know more than Jesus. Right? One German reformer, but be careful though, because even godly people, amazing people, fall into this trap of getting caught up and trying to perceive the times and the dates, and this is happening, and that means this, and this prophecy is fulfilled, and this and that. Okay, one German reformer I was reading this week wrote in the early 1500s that the end is near at hand, quote. He wrote this, for the history, because he was looking at history saying, this seems to indicate that Jesus is coming any day. And in a way, I mean, depending upon your perspective, Jesus is coming any day. Depends on how you look at it, right? But he says this, for the history of the centuries that have passed since the birth of Christ, nowhere reveals conditions like those of the present. There has never been such building and planting in the world. There has never been such gluttonous and varied eating and drinking as now. Wearing apparel has reached its limit in costliness. Yeah, right. (laughs) Who has ever heard of such commerce as now encircles the earth? There have arisen all kinds of art and sculpture, embroidery and engraving, the like of which not has been seen during the whole Christian era. This was written in the early 1500s. As he goes on to talk, and he goes on talking about the corruption in the church and all these kinds of other things as well, which is very interesting. But my, my, if he would have only lived to see today, right? No doubt, if Christ should tarry, others will be saying the same about us in some hundreds of years, right? They thought that planes were cool. You know? They thought that the internet was something else. They thought that medical breakthroughs were amazing back then, that the Empire State Building and Khalifa and the One World Trade Center were pretty impressive. They thought that the Hubble Space Telescope and smartphones were all the rage, right? 
They didn't know anything, they might say. Like us looking back, right, at the early 1500s, like, what? Commerce? Are you kidding me? With costliness with robes and garments, whatever. So let us not be quick to hazard a guess because God only knows the times and the seasons, right? That's why I go into that to say let's not get too wrapped up in that. Brother Tim, would you mind pulling up a video? I'm going to show a quick one-minute video here, Tim will. And then I'm going to continue on. But I thought this was kind of of funny here that will play into the next part. Anyway, why I show a video like this, you might ask. Um, well, today's passage really is about how we respond to the signs. Jesus is saying there's these signs, and he's trying to get us to, to see what the appropriate response would be. And I thought that was kind of a funny example, because you've got this problem, right? This wolf that's chasing them down, and they respond, or they think they're responding rightly by opening up the, the whatever, the cooking pot there, and saying goes Santa. And... Uh, Maybe it's a little bit of a lesson, and somehow how we respond to problems creates bigger problems, right? And uh, so really that's kind of what we're seeing. We're going to see here in the rest of our message today is that we've got problems in the world, no doubt, calamities and these signs that Jesus is referring to. And how we respond to them really is the key, okay? So the message, I think, that God has for us this morning, as I understand it, is about our response to the signs. We can't do anything about the signs. It's not sense in, and no sense in getting caught up in what the signs mean necessarily and all of that, interpreting the signs and yada, yada, yada. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about how to respond. Okay? And there's two extremes I think we want to avoid this morning of response. We want to avoid the one extreme, and I'll get to the other in a minute. I'm going to explain the first one before I mention the second one. We want to avoid the one extreme, which is likely more common It's the extreme of indifference. It's the one that Jesus mentions clearly in our text today. The extreme of thinking and living as though the day was a long way off, right? Yeah, yeah, there's those signs. Who knows what they mean anyways? Who cares? Life is going to continue on as we know it for hundreds, maybe even thousands more years. So what? It's that kind of mentality of the extreme of carelessness. I I don't know, I don't understand, and I don't really care. Those who ignore the signs maybe and act like eternity is a million miles away. Those of us who might rather, say, play with our iPhones or sit around and play Assassin's Creed or Destiny or GTA all day and miss the fact that Jesus is more satisfying than this world. That Jesus can do something for your soul and for your life that no virtual reality ever could, right? That stuff's a long way. I'll worry about that when I get old, right? That kind of mentality. Those of us who put our hope maybe in things like, I was talking, I've been talking a lot about this with folks of late, and that's why it came to mind as I was preparing this message. Those of us who maybe still put our hope in the restoration of this earth and believe that there's something out there in nature that can fill the soul, that there's something in the sunset, right? Or something in that river, or in that tree, or in those animals, or in, a li- in living completely energy-independent, or totally organic, or whatever, right? That whole, all of that stuff, right? The earth is wonderful, yes. But Jesus is not the earth. And if Jesus is not in it, it's not going to satisfy. You're missing the hope. Those who maybe put their hope, as we're hearing lots of talk of this, again, this is very popular right now, and especially in our, in our area, on both extremes, actually, that I'm about to mention here. Those who put their hope maybe in a political system, right, are still putting their hope in this world. 
a political global utopia where the government takes care of everybody. We all have health insurance and free education and free access to the internet and clean water and food. You still miss Jesus in that. Jesus is not in all of that stuff and He never will be. You can have all those things which aren't necessarily bad. I'm not condemning those things. But if Jesus is not in it, you have nothing. Or on the other extreme, right, where we're Many of us are in this room, and maybe myself would lean a little bit more this way, would say, no thank you to government. Stay out of my marriage. Stay out of my income. Stay out of my business. Stay out of my food, out of my health care, out of everything else. Stay out of it. Right? Those of us who may would lean more that way politically. Well, you can have personal and political and economic freedom. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. There's a million ways we do this, folks. I'm just giving you a few examples, right? Maybe some of the more controversial ones a little bit. But we look at the things of this world, right, in our own ways, whatever they are. They're probably different for me than they are you and the person next to you. We look at the things in this world and we demand them to do something that they cannot do. And the world cannot satisfy you. Only Jesus can do that. While all these things may be important, and while we've got to talk about these things, and, and these discussions are important to have, if Jesus is not greater, greater than all of that, and is not filling that great hole in us first, then those things are going to go awry, right? Jesus said to a woman, I've referred to this over and over on Sunday mornings here because I think it captures it so well. Jesus, in John chapter 4, was talking to a woman at a well. And he said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. And they'll have to come back and come back and come back. Right? And Jesus said, if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. You will never be thirsty forever, I think is the language that he uses. So the point is, don't ignore the signs, right? The signs remind us that what Jesus is saying in verse 33 today, that heaven and earth are going to pass away. All that stuff is going to pass away. All those examples, all that mess is going to pass away and be gone one day. But what does Jesus say in verse 33? My words will not pass away. Right? The earth and the sky and everything of man will be gone. So don't put your hope in that stuff. Okay? That's the first response, right? Is to, to not be overly, the, the erroneous response would be to ignore it, say it's not a big deal, who cares? I'm going to continue to live my life. The other extreme would be the opposite, to be consumed or fixated with the signs, right? Maybe this is a bit less common, but it's the extreme of being preoccupied, right? With the end. Again, we see a lot of this during our day-to-day where folks are fixated on the signs, rather than ignoring them, rather than just kind of going about their business, continue to pursue whatever cause or, or agenda that they might have of their own. Other folks fixate and zoom in and put them under the microscope and want to analyze and analyze and analyze. The desire and longing to know the meaning of every number or of every prophecy, of every text, or to understand everything that's going on in history, every sign. Looking at the Bible as a big puzzle or a riddle to be figured out, right? These are maybe the folks who watch the news incessantly and rant and rave about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, who see the prophecies of Revelation playing out in and around every world event. Folks who are dominated by the negativity of this life. The air of this extreme, again, is fixating on the signs, right? Now I'll admit, those of you who know me well, this is the side I struggle with. This is my personal struggle. 
I'm the opposite. I, don't, I, don't ha I have a lot of trouble ignoring the stuff. I want to get all caught up in it. That's, that's my struggle. Maybe yours is different. So while many, many of us may not struggle with this, I, I do have some friends, and again myself included, who, who lean more this way. Try and see the deeper, deeper issue at hand, okay? Try and see the deeper issue here. There is, I think, in some of this, a sense of wanting to be prepared in an unhealthy way. Okay? Wanting to be prepared for that day that Jesus returns in an unhealthy way. I was an Eagle Scout. Maybe some of you all familiar with Scouts or been in Scouts, right? What's, what's the motto? Those of you all who are scouting families, anybody know? Be prepared. That's right. Good job. Preparation is good and it's necessary and it's right and it's proper to teach people to be prepared. However, there's a point where preparation becomes obsession, right? Building a bunker out in your backyard that can withstand the heat and the radiation from a nuclear fallout is the extreme of earthly preparedness. And we kind of chuckle about that. But I waterproofed a home in South Carolina. I used to live in North Carolina. I waterproofed a home out in South Carolina where the people spent their life savings building a bunker half the size of this room in the side of a massive hill in their home. And I went out to waterproof it. It was huge. Probably a good foot thick concrete. I mean, you couldn't blow this thing up with a nuclear bomb if you wanted to. There's people out there that, that do that. They live in the fears of what is coming. Right? <clears throat> Most of us, most of us, not all of us, probably see the folly of doing such a thing, right? You're not going to go out and do that, most likely, <laughs> right? However, we're guilty of doing the same thing in a spiritual sense, in another way. So many of us build a spiritual bunker, if you will, to shield us from that day of judgment that's coming. Maybe you slave away doing good works and helping people and conserving and pursuing justice and trying to be good and so on, thinking that it will help you be prepared for God one day. It won't. I'm not saying those things are bad, but it's not going to prepare you for that day. The only thing that can prepare you for God is Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to the great problems of this world. Jesus is the answer for apathy on the one hand, saying, who cares about the signs, right? doesn't matter. I'm going to live my life, whatever. But he's the answer for obsession, too. The answer for those who simply do not care and those who are fixated, both extremes, fail to recognize. Now hear me out. This is the most important thing of all that I'm saying right here. Both extremes fail to recognize the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is enough for you. I don't care where you are. Does it mean all my problems are going to go away, I come to Jesus and everything's hunky-dory? No. doesn't mean that at all. But Jesus will be enough for you. Amen. Both extremes do not put enough emphasis on that fact, that Jesus is enough for you. The point of the signs is not to get you to storm Washington or Rome for justice and peace. That's not why the signs are happening. It's not necessarily the response that Jesus wants. Not that that would necessarily be a bad thing. But that's not the end goal. Or to build a bunker in your backyard on the other extreme. That's not the goal. Look at verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. These signs are intended to get us to look up. To remember that Christ is coming back. To put your hope in Jesus and not in the things of this world. That's the goal. When you see a sign, 
you say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Put your hope in Jesus. Be on guard, it says, verse 34 and following, that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The hope of Advent is Jesus Christ. It's the hope that God has provided the strength. That God has and will provide in Jesus all that is necessary for you to stand in that great hour on that great day. He came once as a babe in a manger. We're going to tell this story. You're going to hear it over and over again in this coming month. We're going to tell that old story again about how Jesus came, born in a manger. God has provided. But we're also going to hear, or at least I hope we will, we'll continue to emphasize that God will provide as well. Remember, at one point, the people of God were in our position. Right? Or we're waiting again. They were waiting on the first advent. Now we're waiting on the second advent, right? So he came once as a babe in a manger after much waiting and expectation. That's what we're celebrating at Advent. But the real hope of Advent is not just that Jesus has come once. The hope of Advent is that Jesus will come again. That the first Advent was a prelude to the second. That the first guaranteed the second. That the first, when Jesus came as a poor boy in the manger, living a righteous life, dying an atoning death for sin for all who would put their trust in Him, that was good news. That was gospel because it was securing us, for us, not just freedom from condemnation, but an eternity with the happiest being in existence. What good is the death of Christ if there's nothing following that? It's just someone throwing themselves out of a car saying, I love you, ah, I'm going to throw myself out of a car and kill myself. If it doesn't do anything for us, right? Just a random act of love. But the, the beauty of the first advent in Christ's death is that it secured for us an eternity with God. The cross was God's act of wooing His bride. It was the great sacrifice to win His bride, the church. But we haven't had the honeymoon yet. Things have not been consummated as of yet. That's coming. He will come again as He's promised to take us to be with Himself where there will be no more fears or tears or mourning or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or judgment or estrangement. All will be made right. So this Advent we celebrate the fact that God has done it once. He's come once. Hallelujah. But He will come again. He will come again. So put your hope in the mighty strength of Jesus to be everything for you now as you wait. And then as you stand before God in His presence for the rest of eternity. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, not just right now, forever.
now thy gracious kingdom bring. And he will on the, on the clouds with glory one day. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient, hear that word, sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're just thankful that Advent is... Um, God, yes, it's the story of you coming down and touching earth. God, the beautiful, beautiful story of Jesus, the babe in the manger. The story of promises and hopes fulfilled. But Lord, Advent is also us here waiting right now on further promises. You said, I will come again. As we read today, the Son of Man will come on the clouds with great glory. Oh Lord, we look at your first Advent and we plead with you. God, be faithful to do the second to come again to make things right. Oh Lord, as we see the signs, I, I plead for these people and for myself. God, I know I'm, I'm so tempted to just grovel in the struggles of this world and the problems of this life and the difficulties, Lord. I just grovel around and, and focus and fixate on the troubles. Lord, that's my struggle. Maybe some of us in this room ignore them and just think, you know, whatever. I don't know. Wherever we are this morning, God, I pray, help us to respond properly by looking up to the Lord Jesus, looking to that day when he will return, putting our faith and trust in him and being watchful and being ready. Lord, make us ready, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.